thank you so much for being here today in worship. Uh, this morning we are continuing the series that we've been in called A Different Gospel. And if you're new here today, if you've not been here for any part of this series, we are looking at uh, what can only be described as a movement uh, within churches and denominations in our nation that is called progressive Christianity. And this is the definition that we've given uh, to progressive Christianity. It is a movement with historical Christian roots, yet differs in its view of the Bible, Christian doctrines, moral, and social issues. And so this morning we are looking at one of the, social, the moral issues, um, and it is the issue that has become the most visible dividing line between historic and progressive Christians. In fact, on your message map, you can see the title of this particular sermon is, Are You Affirming or Mean? This title came from an email I received several years ago where someone who I did not know emailed and asked me this question. They said, I'd like to know more about your church. Are you an affirming church or are you one of those fundamentalist mean churches? I did not respond to the email, but that question has become the litmus test for progressive Christians. Uh, either you completely affirm the LGBTQ plus lifestyle, or you're a dinosaur. You're a fundamentalist. You're just mean. And that is the catchword, affirm. As I talked about in the first week of this series, we as a church and most historic Christian churches that I know of are welcoming to everyone. No matter what you've done, this is a place for sinners. When Whatever you did this past week, this past year, whatever you did this morning, this is a place for sinners. None of us are perfect, whether it's heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, any kind of sin. We welcome everyone here. But welcoming is not enough in the progressive Christian mindset. It is, are you affirming? The test is, do you affirm the moral validity of these lifestyle choices, or are you just mean? So this morning we're going to dive into this topic, and before we do, there are a few foundational truths that I'd like to share with you. Again, this is on your message map. The first one is, as a foundational truth, that sex is a wonderful gift from God. Historic Christians by no means are anti-sex, anti-pleasure, anti-fun, we're not prudes, it's just that we recognize that sex can cause great damage when it is misused. The illustration that is often used is that of a fire. Uh, within the context of a fireplace, it is wonderful and provides heat and warmth. When it moves outside of that fireplace, it burns down the house. Sex is the same way within the context of marriage, it is a wonderful gift with many blessings. Outside of those parameters, it can cause a lot of damage. Foundational truth number two is that sexual desire is one of the strongest human urges. Perhaps arguably the strongest human desire. Um, it makes sense that because it is so strong that God would place some boundaries upon it. I think that historic Christians and progressive Christians would agree that there need to be some moral parameters. Even though our culture has said basically anything goes, 
we understand that this powerful human urge can be very misused and cause a lot of destruction. Which is a segue to the third truth on your message map. All sin is sin, but sexual sin is especially dangerous. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6 when he wrote these words. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. This powerful human urge, when it is not used in the right way, can cause incredible damage. All sin is sin, but the consequences of sin differ. If I tell a lie to make myself look better, it is a sin, but the consequences of that sin are much different than if I have an extramarital affair. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. And I think what Paul is doing here is telling us what we know instinctively to be true, is that sex can cause an incredible amount of destruction in our lives when it is misused. Next, historically, Christians have believed that sex is restricted to a man and a woman inside a marriage relationship. For the last nearly 2,000 years, this has been the view of the Christian church. And any sexual relationship that falls outside of the boundaries of a marriage relationship has been considered immoral. There are numerous passages and verses that we could point to that talk about this. Uh, this one is from the New Testament book of Hebrews, where the writer says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The word for adulterer there is the word unfaithful. It is sometimes used to describe our relationship with God. Here in this context, it is used to describe someone who is unfaithful to their spouse. Uh, the word for sexually immoral is the word porneia. It's the word that we get our word pornography from. And it is used to describe an entire range of sexual immorality, including homosexual acts. And so this has been the view of the church for the last 2,000 years, that sex is God's design to be contained within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Churches across denominations, Catholic, Protestant, have all agreed to this definition. Churches that have disagreed on a number of issues, including baptism, the end times, uh, disagreed on salvation and whether the sovereignty of God is more at play or the free will of man is more at play. Churches that have had a lot of disagreements have agreed with this definition that the Bible teaches that sex is to be within the boundaries of a marriage relationship. However, you can see the next point on your map, as our culture's views have changed, progressive Christians have redefined sexual immorality. Again, this is the litmus test and this is the rub between historic Christians and progressive Christians. Progressive Christians have redefined what is moral and immoral regarding sexual relationships. Now, as I've mentioned in this series, it is 
impossible to say all progressive Christians believe X. It is not a denomination with a creed that all progressive Christians have signed off on. There is a spectrum of beliefs on this issue. So what I'm giving you is a 30,000 foot view. And in my studies and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos with debates, these are the basic five arguments that progressive Christians have made for why they have justified LGBTQ actions and affirmed those who practice those lifestyles. So again, this is on your message map. Here's number one. The first justification is love is love as long as no one is hurt. And this is probably the most common one that I read. Love is love as long as no one is hurt in the process. This is a quote that is directly from a website that is devoted exclusively to arguing that homosexuality is not a sin. The quote is this, the Bible provides a test to decide whether sex between men and sex between women is good or bad. It is the no harm test. You ask, does the activity cause harm or not? The test is based on Romans 13, summarized as, if you love or act for the welfare of your neighbor, including not harming your neighbor, you then fulfill, meet all the requirements of the Old Testament commands. This test applies both to sex in a loving monogamous relationship and to casual or recreational sex. The participants pass the test if they act with caring love and do not cause harm. So again, the argument here is love is love, and as long as no one is hurt, then it is morally acceptable. Now the problem with this progressive Christian argument is that the definitions of love and hurt are both very subjective. Love by this standard is however I define love. I might say, look, I love my wife, and I love this other woman as well, and I can love both because love is love, and as long as no one is hurt, then it's okay. In fact, I could give hundreds of examples of people who define love in very sick ways that would even make progressive Christians cringe, but it is their definition of love. The other problem with this argument is the word hurt is subjective as well. Again, very, back to my very hypothetical example, I could say I love my wife, I love this other woman, as long as neither finds out, no one's hurt, right? Love is love, I can do whatever I want, but is that the case? Does that make my actions moral just because no one is hurt? And we could list so many more examples. Pedophiles will argue that in their actions, no one is hurt. Those who practice polygamy will make the argument that no one is hurt. Those who advocate for prostitution being legalized argue that no one gets hurt, that it's all consensual. See, the word hurt there is very subjective, and it's your definition versus my definition. And really, by this definition, that love is love, as long as no one is hurt, at the end of the day, it's really just sort of a sexual free-for-all. 
Because all of us get to define what is moral or immoral by our own definition of love and heart. Historic Christians have said there is an objective standard outside of our own subjective definitions. And this standard is based upon God's word, which is based on the character of God. Or we can phrase it this way, and this is on your message map. The historic Christian response is God defines what is loving and harmful. It is God's word that tells us how we should love one another and how our behavior should be non-harmful to one another. So that is the first response to the first progressive Christian argument. The second progressive Christian argument is there are lots of other biblical commands that we do not follow. This argument is based mainly upon the commands in Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, which condemns homosexual acts. Let me look at these verses. Leviticus 18 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then Leviticus 20 actually gives the punishment for it. It says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. And so the argument that is made by progressive Christians is, sure, these verses condemn homosexuality. However, there are lots of other Old Testament laws that we do not follow. That even historic Christians who say the Bible is 100% the word of God, we do not follow these commands. And they're right. We do not. Let me give you some examples of commands we do not follow. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two different kinds of material. So all of you who planted your summer gardens and you put watermelons and tomatoes in your summer garden, you broke the word of God. You violated this law. All of you who wear spandex or some other kind of blended material, you've broken this law. Here's another one. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the, off the edges of your beard. I'm breaking this one right now. I've shaved my beard. Cut the, the hair on the sides of your head. You violated this law. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall, shall surely be put to death. Now, if I have an affair, my wife would advocate for this verse to be used on me. <laughs> But she's not advocating that this in general applies to our culture. Here's one. Anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. I love the Israelites. They don't fool around with that timeout mess. They get right <laughs> down to it. Talk back. Just go ahead and talk back to me. You know what we do. We do not enforce any of these. And we could point to dozens of other laws that have to do with sacrificing animals or the penalties for crimes or various worship regulations, and we do not follow those commands. And so the argument is, if we do not follow those commands, why do we follow the ones about homosexuality? Aren't we cherry-picking verses there? Here is the historic Christian response. You see this on your message map. In the Old Testament, we find three different categories of laws. Not all laws are the same. And here's the first category, it's ceremonial laws. So the first category are ceremonial laws. 
These are the laws that have to do with cutting one's beard, planting different kinds of crops. Um, There are a variety of reasons the Israelites were given these laws, mainly to protect them, uh, mainly to protect them spiritually from following after the gods of the nations around them. The second are civil laws. These are laws that represent the criminal code of Israel as a nation. So penalties for crimes that that are not binding on us today. We might say adultery is still a sin, but we would not say that people need to be put to death for committing the act of adultery. That was their civil governmental law given for a specific time and place, but not forever binding on God's people. The third category are moral laws. These are the rules of the Old Testament which represent God's own character. Uh, We see this best summarized in the Ten Commandments. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. These are laws that are still applicable to us today. So the question is, how do we know? How do we know which laws are civil laws or ceremonial laws and which laws are moral laws and are still binding upon us today? It's easy. They are affirmed in the New Testament. They're either affirmed or they're expanded upon. Like Jesus saying, yeah, murder is wrong. You know that. However, it's bigger than that. If you hate someone in your heart, that's a sin as well. So the moral law is affirmed in the New Testament. And so to answer the progressive Christian argument, sure, we do not follow all of these other laws, but they're not part of the moral law. However, the verses in Leviticus 18 and 20 are part of the moral law. And we know that because the same moral code is repeated in the New Testament. And we'll look at a few of those verses in just a moment. Argument number three, verses condemning homosexuality were addressing abusive relationships. We looked just a moment ago at Leviticus 18 and 20. Let me go back to Leviticus 18. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. There are a number of arguments made by progressive Christians that this verse and the other verses in the New Testament and Old Testament are really condemning abusive, non-consensual relationships. In fact, they argue that this particular verse was an abusive relationship within the context of idol worship. Uh, There's a long article on this issue by Rabbi Dana Rutenberg. Although she is Jewish and not a progressive Christian, it summarizes well what I've read from a number of progressive Christians. Most of Leviticus 18 forbids incest, bestiality, child sacrifice, horrible things that imply imbalanced power dynamics in some way. Again, when you juxtapose Genesis 19 and Judges 19 to see that what is of concern in those stories is clearly about sexual assault and domination, it seems probable to conclude that what is being forbidden is not a loving, consensual relationship. So again, the argument here is that these prohibitions were against abusive relationships And the law wasn't addressing a consensual, loving, same-sex relationship. Okay, let's do this. For just a moment, let's assume that they are right. 
that when the Moses who wrote down this from the Lord in Leviticus, when he wrote this, that really what God meant was abusive relationships, non-consensual relationships. Even if that were the case, that the original writer did not mean consensual relationships, it was universally understood by the Israelites to mean any same-sex relationship was immoral. That a man was not to have a sexual relationship with another man, consensual or otherwise. When Jesus came to this earth, that was the common understanding among the Jews. So follow my reasoning here. If that were the case, if this verse was only condemning non-consensual same-sex relationships, don't you think at some point Jesus would have set the people straight? That he would have said to the crowds or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, hey, by the way, on this whole homosexual thing, you guys have missed it completely. Moses did not mean any same-sex relationship. He just meant abusive same-sex relationships where power dynamics were at play. Don't you think at some point Jesus would have made that clear both for the Jewish culture and the church that would have later been established? But Jesus never said that. He never clarified the issue. It seems that he would have done that. In fact, the best way to summarize it is this. These verses were never viewed by the Jewish community in this way, and Jesus never corrected their, quote, misunderstanding. Not one time did he say, you guys have gotten this wrong. Which leads us to the next argument made by progressive Christians, which you can see on your message map. Jesus himself never condemned homosexual relationships. And I've seen this in a number of places where writers have basically said, okay, we get it that these verses condemn homosexual relationships. However, you never see this from the lips of Jesus. One article on a website called American Progress summarized it this way. Jesus never said one word against homosexuality. In all of his teachings, Jesus uplifted actions and attitudes of justice, love, humility, mercy, and compassion. He condemned violence, oppression, cold-heartedness, and social injustice. Never once did Jesus refer to what we called homosexuality as a sin. And again, they say, sure, other passages, they will acquiesce to that. Other passages condemn homosexuality. However... Jesus never said that it was wrong, which is true. Jesus never came out and said homosexuality is wrong, except this was the common belief of the day. And Jesus never corrected that. And I personally believe that his silence on the matter is about the most proof that you need that Jesus considered homosexual acts to be immoral. Beyond that, what Jesus did in several places was to affirm the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. At one point, Jesus was asked uh, about a relationship, uh, about divorce, and Jesus said this, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, he replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That reference to one flesh is Jesus referring to the sexual relationship of a man and a woman. Within the marriage relationship, there is to be a physical union between the husband and the wife. Jesus affirmed this as being from God and good and loving. And so here's the argument. Jesus did affirm the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. The other thing is, in a number of places, Jesus as well condemned um, both adultery and promiscuity. And so we can say with certainty that Jesus did not believe that as long as it was consensual, anything goes. Because he clearly condemned sexual sin. And so Jesus knew there were boundaries, or Jesus did teach there were boundaries to sexual acts. All right, progressive argument number five. If homosexuality was wrong, God would not have made people feel this way. Uh, This is an argument that is phrased in a variety of ways. Um, Here is a good summation from a website on this issue. It says, feel a conflict between your sexuality and your Christian beliefs? No worries. God loves you as you are. You can be both a Christian and a loving, sexually active gay, lesbian, or bisexual. It is totally okay to be romantically or sexually attracted to someone of the same sex as yourself and to act on those attractions in a non harmful way. This argument tends to be a very personal and emotional argument, which I think as historic Christians, we need to recognize that most often when the argument is made that if I, if this was wrong, I would not feel this way. It is made by someone who is personally struggling with it, or they have a son or a daughter who is struggling with same-sex attraction or a friend who is struggling with same-sex attraction, and they honestly say, God, if this is wrong, why did you make me feel this way? Why do I have these attractions? The historic Christian response to this is threefold. Number one, you see this on your message map. Desire does not justify an action. We all have desires that are sinful. Um, pride, anger, envy. I mean, just because I feel that way doesn't mean that it's not sinful. Sexual desires that are not in line with the way God created us to live, just because we desire those things, doesn't mean that they are right. Paul wrote this in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Any desire that is not in line with what God's word teaches is to be put to death. Uh, The Greek word there is nekru. Uh, We get our English word necrosis from that, which is the death of a tissue. It no longer functions. It no longer works. Paul here says those desires not in line with God's word, we are to put to death so they no longer have power over us. Secondly, as Christians, we are called to deny ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew these words, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To be a follower of Christ is to deny oneself. This means different things for different people. And when we talk about sexual desires, to deny oneself as a heterosexual is to say, before marriage, I am not going to engage in a sexual relationship. Within marriage, I will not engage in a sexual relationship outside of the marriage context. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice and denial. Uh, To say, well, I am a follower of Christ, but I'm not sacrificing my sexual desires does not fit with how Jesus defined being a disciple. Beckett Cook is a former uh, Hollywood set designer who spent 15 years of his life hanging out with individuals like uh, Drew Barrymore and Prince and other actors and musicians, uh, names that most of us would recognize. He was also openly gay and an avowed atheist. However, in 2009, all of that changed. In 2019, he wrote a book called A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. And in that story, he, in that book, he tells the story of hanging out one night after the Oscars at some party with a bunch of Hollywood elites and he was at the prime of his career and he was at the zenith of popularity hanging out with the glitterati of Hollywood and yet he said he felt completely empty inside. He knew there had to be something more. Then he wrote these words. Six months later, I was at a Los Angeles coffee shop with my best friend we noticed a nearby group of millennials with Bibles on the table. We were stunned. Bibles in public in Los Angeles? I asked what their church believed about homosexuality, and they answered frankly, saying that they believed it is a sin. I appreciated their honesty. Five years earlier, I would have snap judged them as bigots still living in the dark ages. Instead, I was able to really hear their perspective and thought, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a sin. What if I've built my life on a false foundation? They invited me to church. I found myself in an evangelical church in Hollywood the following Sunday. Every word from the pastor's mouth rang true. This is the gospel, it turned everything I had understood about religion on its head. It truly was good news. The Holy Spirit overwhelmed me. God revealed himself to me. I began bawling uncontrollably. I knew God was real. Jesus was his son. Heaven was real. The Bible was true all in an instant. I also knew homosexual behavior was a sin. The Holy Spirit made it clear as day. I knew being gay was no longer who I was. It was part of my past, but I didn't care. I had just met the king of the universe, Jesus, and his love is all-consuming. 
10 years later, I am still single and celibate and have never been happier. I am more than willing to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. He is worth it. To be a follower of Christ is to deny yourself. And thirdly, as Christians, we become new creations. To follow Christ means that you have become a new creation. That the old ways, the old lifestyle, the old desires are gone and there is a new creation that you have become. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul emphasized this fact and even used homosexuality as one of the examples of how the Corinthians used to live. Paul wrote this, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Paul here lists a number of sins, not just homosexuality, but other sins as well. And he says, that is what you were. But in Christ, that is no longer the case. In that same letter in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In other words, when you become a follower of Christ, it is about so much more than just getting your ticket stamped so that you can get admittance into heaven. It is about becoming a new creation with new desires and new affections and a new purpose in life. And so to say, well, I've become a follower of Christ, but I'm going to continue to do the same things that I have done. I'm going to continue to continue in the sin pattern that I have been in. And I think that the church and God and everyone else should affirm this is good, is to deny the clear teaching of scripture and this very clear teaching that we are to become new creations. There are another number of other passages that deal with this topic. I have listed those references at the bottom. I wish we had time to go through all of those. Romans 1 especially, I wish we had time to walk through. Romans 1 uh, is a very helpful passage on dealing with this topic. Um, I would recommend you read those at some point this week. Let me close with this. We as followers of Christ are called to respect everyone. To be loving toward everyone. The person that is your neighbor, that is your coworker, that is your friend, that is, that, is an op, uh, that is openly gay, that is openly homosexual, they are a unique creation of God. They bear the image of God. And so we show no disrespect to anyone. However, just because the culture has changed their views on this topic, does not mean that we change. And we are to continue to stand on the word of God and to say we love everyone, we welcome everyone, 
but we do not affirm any lifestyle, any action, any choice that contradicts the word of God. The gospel teaches us that when we become followers of Christ, it it changes us in every way, including our sexual desires. 